The following audio is from First Baptist Pelham in Pelham, Alabama. More information about First Baptist Pelham is available at fbcpelham.org. Pastor of 35 years, Dr. Mike Shaw, wrote the words of that song you just heard based on the Bible, and that Miss Paula Carnegie wrote the music. So it all has origination right here in First Baptist Pillow. Open your Bible with us this morning, if you will, to the last chapter of the book of Second Timothy. And while you're finding that, let me introduce the reading of the scripture by this observation and acknowledgement. In the year 1915, a Presbyterian preacher by the name of Clarence McCartney preached on this passage and later put the sermon in print. It fell in my hands when I was just a young teenage preacher, maybe 17 years of age, and I put it in a file folder, and it lay there dormant for a long, long time, 20 years or more. And one day in 1968, I looked at that, and I said, I was inspired by the idea of that sermon, and I said, I'm going to work up a sermon on that passage. And every year since then, on the first Sunday of November, the last Sunday of October, I've sought to bring this message. But my first insight into this passage came from Dr. Clarence McCartney. He later became the pastor of the First Presbyterian Church in Pittsburgh, Pennsylvania. The other thing that I want to mention as we read this passage here in 2 Timothy 4, if you took the writings of the Apostle Paul that are in our Bible and organized them in chronological fashion, the first to the last, almost all Bible scholars agree that First, and First Thessalonians or Galatians would be number one. But the last one almost universally is agreed. The last one chronologically that Paul wrote is Second Timothy. Chapter four is the last chapter in Second Timothy. And our text, it's verse 21, is almost the last verse in the last book that the greatest Christian who's ever lived this side of Jesus wrote. So we're looking at not just incidental words, but very important words biblically. To get the setting of verse 21, look, if you will, beginning in verse 6 of 2 Timothy 4. Where, as it were, Paul gives his last will and testament. He said, for I'm now ready to be offered in the time of my departures at hand. He goes on to say, I fought a good fight. I finished the course. I've kept the faith. Henceforth there is laid up for me a crown of righteousness, which the Lord, the righteous judge, shall give me at that day, and not to me only, but to all them also that love his appearing. And then he says in verse 9, Do thy diligence to come shortly unto me. And then he gives some personal words of people that it would be interesting if we had time to talk about. But then he comes in verse 21 and to re-emphasize his appeal to his young friend Timothy, he says in verse 21, do thy diligence to come before winter. 
Why? That's an unusual phrase. Why would Paul ask him to come before winter? Well, I think there are at least two reasons for that. One is a practical reason. One's a personal reason. The practical reason is that Paul was very much acquainted with the sailing conditions of that day and time. He had traveled all over the Greek or Roman Empire, establishing churches, you know, as a missionary. And he knew that in the dead of winter, the Mediterranean Sea froze. Paul is in Rome, probably in prison, when he writes this. Timothy's over in Ephesus. And to get from Rome, Ephesus to Rome, he had to cross the Mediterranean. And Paul knew that if he waited till winter and it froze, he couldn't get there until probably when it thawed out next spring. And that leads to the second reason I think he said this. The second was a personal reason. Paul had a premonition that he was going to die. That's what he says basically in verse 6 there. He said, the time of my departure is at hand. He's not talking about going to another place on this earth. He's talking about going to heaven. So Paul is thinking that he's going to die. And essentially he says, Timothy, if you don't get here before winter, you may never see me alive again. The urgency of doing it right now. And so Paul's appeal is come before winter. I like all seasons of the year. I really wouldn't like to live somewhere where it's a cool, calm, 72 degrees all year long. Now you may say, Carter, you're crazy. Do you know how cold it gets around here sometime in wintertime? I do. This past January, I got snowbound at Stanford University. I had to spend the night sleeping on the floor. I couldn't get home. I remember that. And do you know how hot it gets here in July? Sometimes it's 100 degrees for, I know. I still like all seasons of the year. I like the snow time, uh, the winter time. I like to go outside and play in the snow. I still have a little boy in me. I love the snow. I love to go out on a cold winter night and you can look up into heaven and the stars are like silver-headed nails riveted into the vault of heaven. There's something invigorating about a cold winter night. I like the springtime, the apex of our Christian years there. The celebration of resurrection, the, the Jesus Christ coming back from the dead, what the choir sang about a few moments ago. I love the springtime. There's something invigorating about it. I love summertime. It used to be a more leisurely time. I'm not sure it's that way now, but at least you have longer days, and it's the longest season we have. I love the summertime. But of all the seasons we have in our part of the world, my favorite is the one we're in right now. And I see some of you shaking your head. I'm glad you're right. If you don't like this season, I don't know what it would take to make you happy. <laughs> you will never see the world any more beautiful than what it is right now. Week before last, I spent a week in the hills of Tennessee, and the beauty of nature was everywhere. And I was astride a Tennessee walking horse, so that made it look even better. But I could not help. Every day as I got out and went out, I saw the beauty of God's nature where he took the greens and the golds and the reds and the, and the browns and the bronzes and put them all in a kaleidoscope of color. And it was all aglow. I love autumn, my favorite time of the year. And not just because it signals the beginning of quail season. Uh, I woke up the other morning and my old shotgun was just rattling downstairs. I just wanted to be sure. I knew it was almost time for us to go hunting. Now, I'm joking you a little bit, but I do love 
this season of the year. And I'm glad that I preached this sermon today because when I looked at my thermometer this morning, it was 30 degrees. And I said, Lord, winter's already gotten here. And I haven't preached that sermon. But what I'm saying to you is they're the beautiful season of autumn. But think about it. It is a parable of the beauty and brevity of life's passing opportunities. Think about it for a moment. Winter is usually in our part of the world, December, January, February. Spring is March, April, and May. Summer is the longest season, June, July, August, and September. Sometimes September is even the hottest month. And then you come to autumn, October, and at best, November. And sometimes that gets truncated. These beautiful leaves that you see on the trees now, all around us, all over Oak Mountain and Double Oak Mountain and everywhere, I promise you, one month from today, they'll all be gone. You'll have to rake them in your yard, haul them off. They're here today. <clears throat> They're gone in a short time. Autumn is the briefest and yet most beautiful season, and I hope every time you look out and see these autumn leaves falling, It'll be a reminder to you of this sermon and the beauty and brevity of life's passing opportunities. Things you can do today, you can't do a week from now, a month from now, much less a year from now. So the urgency, the appeal of come before winter is to underscore the urgency of N-O-W, now. Say it with me. Now. That little short word appears no less than 277 times in our Bible, again and again and again, God is seen telling us, do it now, do it now, do it now, do it now. Three things I want to underscore in your mind this morning about come before winter. Our relationship to Christ, our relationship to ourselves, and our relationship to others. And when you stop and think about it, your relationship to God, your relationship to yourself and your relationship to others pretty well encompasses all of your life at this particular present time. So, here's the whole appeal. Certain things we need to do in our relationship to Christ. Now, later will be too late. Here's what I'm talking about. In both receiving Christ and in sharing Christ. You can become a Christian, but not just any time you take an ocean. You can come to Christ in time to save your life, but too late to save your family. I preached this sermon several years ago in Huntsville, Alabama. A man came to me the, Sunday, the Monday after I'd preached it on Sunday and said to me, I have a small gift I want to give you and your wife. I resigned as their pastor to come to Shades Mountain. But then he said, there's something else I want to tell you. And here was the background to his story. Several months before, I'd visited their home. He and his wife lived down on Weatherly Road in southeast Huntsville, next door to our chairman of deacons. They were not Christians, and I'd gone by to see them, to explain to them how to become a Christian, invite them, to come to Christ and to come to our church. They were very kind, very open. But they said, well, Dr. Carter said, we, 
we understand, but uh, we have aged parents in Down and Cullman, and we try to go down there every weekend to check on them and to be sure everything is well and good and there's nothing wrong with that. They had three teenage boys. They said, we know we need to do this, but once our parents are gone, we'll try to do it. Several weeks after that visit, the 15-year-old boy, their middle son, was riding in a carpool down Whitesburg Drive in southeast Huntsville, and suddenly there was an automobile accident. He was tragically injured. I ran down to the Huntsville Hospital, got there before they even got there. They came in, and we sat down in a little waiting room, and in a moment, the doctor came in, and he said, Roy and Dot, I'm sorry, we just lost Mike. Their 15-year-old had died in the emergency room. One fell on one shoulder and one fell on the other, and we cried. We prayed. We planned the service. Three days later, I had that teenage boy's funeral service. The next Sunday morning, down this middle aisle, came Roy and Dot Wells, accepting Christ, making it public, I baptized them. Now go back to him coming to me after this sermon, and he said, Dr. Carter, why, why didn't Dot and I do it before winter? Why didn't we do it before we lost Mike? There is no answer to that. They came to God in time to save their lives but too late to save their family. As far as I know, that 15-year-old boy never accepted Christ. He went out lost. They knew that, and they felt so responsible. They came to Christ in time to save their lives. They're still Christians. They're still going to heaven when they die. They're still, the last time I checked, they were active in that church, living for God. But that teenage boy, once dead, was gone forever. It's possible to come to Christ in time to save your life. Too late to save your family. Sometime it's too late to show your love. You can be saved late in life, I grant you that, but too late to show your love. Some of you remember the closing night of our revival here in August when Bob Pittman preached down the aisle over here. Came a dear friend came to Donnie, 90 years of age. He made his profession of faith in Christ right here in this church. And many of us were thrilled that a 90-year-old man could be saved. But down one of these aisles came a little nine-year-old girl. And you may remember that I said, sweetheart, everybody's excited about Mr. Joe coming to Christ, and I am too, but I want to tell you, You've got your whole life to live to show him how much you love him. When you're 90 years old, you ain't going to live very much longer. Now, what was I saying? You can come to Christ in time to save your life, but too late to show your love. Now, what I'm saying to you is, if you're not a Christian, hear me now. There's no better time to come to Christ than right now. The earlier in life you can accept Christ, the better. Help me just a little bit. Obviously, this is unrehearsed, but let me take just a minute and ask you to help me preach this sermon. Think for me for a moment 
At what period in your life did you become a Christian? You may not know the exact day, or you may. I do. August the 15th, 1943. Some people know that. Other people don't remember or don't know. But at what period in your life did you become a Christian? If you are, if you're not a Christian, you're not going to be embarrassed by this. Nobody's going to know what you're going to do. All right, are you ready? The period in your life when you became a Christian. If you became a Christian when you were, by the time you were nine years of age, as I did, would you stand for just a moment? You accepted Christ by the time you were nine years old. Now look around. This is unrehearsed. Look around. Up balcony. Thank you. Be seated. If you became a Christian when you were 10, 11, or 12, would you stand? 10, 11, or 12. Look around. I want you to see each other. Your church. 10, 11, or 12. Thank you. Be seated. If you became a Christian when you were a teenager, 13 through 19, would you stand? 13 through 19. Look around. All right. Thank you. Be seated. If you became a Christian in your 20s, would you stand? In your 20s. Would you stand? Look around. Thank you. Be seated. If you became a Christian in your 30s, would you stand? One, two, three, four, five, six, seven, eight, nine, ten, eleven, twelve. Thank you. Be seated. If you became a Christian in your 40s, would you stand? One, two, three, four, five. Five. If you became a Christian in your 50s, would you stand? Three. One of these is my dear friend Warren Koontz. I think he made his profession of faith on Easter Sunday, didn't you? At our church. I met him 18 years earlier, 16 years earlier, in 1980. I think he was 1996. In his 50s, he and two others. If you became a Christian in your 60s, would you stand? One. Three in their 50s, one in their 60s. Thank you. If you became a Christian in your 70s, would you stand? If you can. <laughs> if you became a Christian in your 70s or above, would you stand? Now, you obviously know this is unrehearsed. You didn't know what I was going to do. A silent sermon by you, the church of First Baptist Pelham. Overwhelmingly, most of you became Christians by the time you were a teenager. A little more in 20s, a few less in 30s, even less in their 40s, a few in their 50s, and very few beyond that. And what am I saying? Come before winter. Do it now. Exactly what the Bible says. The Bible says, come now, let's reason together. Lord, our hope is in you. So come now, let's reason together, Isaiah said. The only sure time you know that you can become a Christian is right now. But not just a matter of receiving Christ and sharing Christ. I'm talking about letting others come to know Christ through you. The Bible says, lift up your eyes and look on the fields. 
They're white already unto harvest. You say, where are the lost people, preacher? Listen, in Alabama today, though we're in the Bible Belt of the South, every other person you see, an average, is a lost person. 50% of the people of Alabama have no saving faith in Christ whatsoever. And it's worse in other parts of the countries. So most people who are not already Christians don't already know how to be Christians. And we can have an effect upon them. And we need to do it now. First of all, yes, they may die. I hold in my hand a clipping I've saved. is beginning to get yellow. It also includes a business card, just like the ones that were in your bulletin this morning. Filled out by a young 16-year-old exchange student from Austria. He had come to the United States to study for a year. came to Vestavia High School. On a certain Sunday morning, young people in our church, just like these young people over here, invited him to come to worship with them. He came and sat up here in the balcony, right over here on this side. He heard me preach. With his friends, he got in the car, went to lunch, and that afternoon, he was riding down in a Ford Explorer, down Highway 80, boom, they had a tragic accident, and that young 16-year-old exchange student went in our, our church at 12 o'clock that morning, 2 o'clock that afternoon, he was dead. I said, told this story at First Baptist Alabaster just a while back, a policeman came up to me afterwards and said, Dr. Carter, I investigated that accident. I helped get that young man out of the car when he died. I know what you're talking about. Now, what happened? He was in church on Sunday morning. Before Sunday night, he was in eternity. I don't have to tell you, I went back and listened to that sermon. The last sermon he heard, did, he, did I tell him Jesus was the only way to be saved and that he would save him and give him eternal life right now? And I was gratified that I did. I don't always do that as I should, but I did in that sermon. But that young man, 16 years of age, here today, gone this afternoon. Young people, you don't have all the time in the world to become a Christian. That's why the urgency of come before winter is to do it now. Why? People may die. But look, I'm not here to try to scare you. People may live also. Several years ago, I was invited to preach this sermon at Pigeon Forge. I brought come before winter. There was a medical doctor there from South Carolina. I still have his calling card. He shared with me a note that was left in his hotel room. For after hearing this sermon and the challenge of witnessing and sharing Christ, he went back to the hotel where they were staying for that week and witnessed to the maid cleaning lady in the room. And here's the letter, a copy he gave me. It says, Dear Room 1578. She didn't even know his name. I thought you might like to know <laughs> I got saved last night and how much I appreciate the pocket Bible you gave me. I know I will have very much use for it. Hope you enjoy your say as much as I've enjoyed you being here. Hope you have a safe trip home and God bless you. I'll see you in heaven. Your maid, Liz. Now what happened? This man, a medical doctor he was, from South, Aiken, South Carolina, recognized maybe, just maybe, the maid might not be a Christian, witnessed her, gave her a Bible, 
I got saved last night. Now, what am I saying? In the matter of receiving Christ, in the matter of sharing Christ, people may die, that young teenager did. People may live, hopefully that maid did. But the urgency of doing it now, but not just in our relationship to Christ, but in our relationship to ourselves. Listen carefully. I want to ask you a question, and I want to give you a guiding principle. You ready? Here's the question. Are you satisfied, or do you like the person you are in the process of becoming? Sobering question. Right now, you ask it. Nobody knows the answer but you. Are you pleased? Are you satisfied? Do you like the person you are in the process of becoming? When you look in the mirror, I'm not talking about would you like more hair, you like a different color hair, you like the wrinkles off your face or all that. I'm talking about the real you. Are you satisfied with what you see in the mirror? Young people, when you look at the mirror, you see yourself. I'm talking about the real you. Your morals, your attitude, your action. Are you satisfied with it? I don't mean you're perfect, but I just mean are you satisfied with the person you're in the process of becoming? That's the question. Now here's the principle. You ready? You and I are in the process of becoming forever exactly what we are right now unless we make a conscious decision to change. There's no way to get around it. Unless, if you're not satisfied with the person you're in the process of becoming, it'll never change unless you make up your mind. Now, I don't like my morals. I don't like what I'm becoming. I don't like the drift in my life. I don't like these ugly attitudes I have. I don't like holding on to all this garbage. I don't like the person I'm becoming. I want to change my life. I want to be the kind of person God wants me to be. I want my life to be what he wants me to be. For here's the whole point. There is a time in our lives when we could change if we would. But there comes a time when we would change if we could. Your character tends sort of state of fixation, psychologists call it when it's almost impossible to change. One more time. In our relationship to ourselves, do you like the person you are in the process of becoming? If not, only you can change it. There's no better time than right now. Oh, you say, preacher, you can't teach old dogs new tricks. Listen, friend, I'm not talking to dogs and I'm not talking about tricks. I'm talking to men and women and I'm talking about the eternal destinies of life. I'm talking about you, not some dog, not some trick. I'm talking about real life. Do you like the person you are in the process of becoming quickly? In the relationship to others, there's something come before winter says to us, and in closing, I want to point this out to you. Listen to it carefully. The Bible says in the book of James, chapter 4, verse 14, what is your life? It's a puff of smoke. It's, a, it's just a little va vapor that appears, a mist that appears for a little while. And then it's gone. 
You don't have all the time of the world in your relationship to others to get things done right. What about your resources? I'm talking about resources each of us have. First of all, our immediate resources. Are you being honest with God? We're coming to the end of the year. You're going to be filing your income tax in a few months. When you look at that, it's private, it's confidential. Nobody sees it but you and God and the IRS. Are your books balanced with God? Tomorrow may be too late. The time to do it is right now. But I know many of you are tithers. Many of you are honest with God. What about your ultimate resources? I'm not talking about your immediate resources. I mean, I know people all their lives, they've been faithful tithers, but you know the tragedy? They don't have a will. You say, preacher, you're in. Listen, the people who study this tell us today, 2014, 75% of the adults in America who die, die intestate. That is, they don't have a will. You owe it to yourself, you owe it to your family to have a will. Now, your attorneys in the church didn't tell me to say this, but I'm telling you, it is Christian irresponsibility not to have a will. <coughs> and it won't hurt if you want to mention your church and you will. Now, they didn't tell me to say that either, but you can. Now, here's the whole point. If you don't have a will this week, make up your mind, we're going to do it. All oh, you say, preacher, <laughs> I took care of that 40 years ago. That's what I thought. If you haven't updated your will in the last re recent years, it's out of date. You need to review it and update it periodically. Listen to me. When you die, now some people say, oh, preacher, don't. I, I don't like to talk about dying. That's why people don't have a will, we're told by those who do the study. Why don't you have a will? I don't like to think about dying. And some of you feel that way right now. Maybe you're already getting mad at me. Hold on, hold on, hold on. I want to make a deal with you. Here it is. If you will promise me never to die, I'll promise you not to talk about it anymore. Are we all right? Are we together? Are we on the same page? You say, preacher, I'm going to die. Well, if you know you're going to die, the sensible thing to do now, what you can do while you're still alive, have a will. For somebody is going to decide what happens to the residue of your estate. If you don't do it, somebody's going to do it for you. And I'm independent enough, I'd rather do it myself. Amen? Amen. All right, then get out there and get that will this afternoon. Make plans and do it tomorrow. I'm joking, but do it now. Don't wait till it's too late. In our relationship to our resources, but also in our relationship to our families and friends. You know what I'm talking about? So many times, we don't let our relationship with our family and friends take a priority. One of the greatest Christians who ever lived, Billy Graham, still living in his 90s. Several years ago, Billy Graham was asked, Mr. Graham, do you have any regrets? Can you imagine regrets that Billy Graham has? He preached to more people than anybody in the history of mankind. I have his answer right here in his own words. He said, I do have some regrets. I would have spent more time with each of my five children. I was the father of the family, but individually, my wife was father and mother to them. Now, Dad, you listen to me. 
Nobody, nobody can be the father to your children but you. And if you and I are not acting responsibly, we need to do it now, coming from the testimony of one who feels that with his... Now, he wasn't out getting drunk and carousing. He was out helping people come to know Christ. But that's no excuse for ignoring the needs of our children. Show your family that you love them. Tell them that you love them. Express it to them. Let them know how much they mean to you. Your relationship to your family, it's so important. You say, well, they ought to know that I love them. No, tell them so. It's not good enough that you think they know it already. I could not tell you the number of young people who have called me on the phone sometime long distance, sometime late at night, say, Brother Carter, listen to me. I've never heard my dad say, I love you. A tragedy. Children, teenagers, growing up, soon gone. I never heard my dad say, I love you. That drove me to remember an article I clipped from Ann Landers when she was writing with the newspaper. Listen to it carefully. Here's what she said. Uh, someone wrote to her and said, Dear Ann, I was moved to tears by the letter in your column from the mother who asked at what age a father and son should stop exchanging kisses and saying, I love you. Your reply was one word, never. How right you are. A few weeks ago, I hugged my son and told him I loved him for the first time ever. Unfortunately, it was too late because he was dead. It shot himself. The greatest regret of my life is that I kept my son at arm's length. I believe it was unmanly for males to show affection to one another. I treated my son like my father treated me. And I realize now what a terrible mistake it was. Please tell your readers who were raised by macho dads that it is cruel and mean to withhold affection from their sons. I will never recover from my ignorance and stupidity. Signed, no name, no city, no state. And we might add, no son. Men, don't let that be you. Today, if you've not done it already, tell your son, tell your daughter, I love you. I told both of mine that yesterday, not just so I could say it to you. I meant it. I want to continue doing that. Express love. You say, well, they ought to know that I love them. Look what I've given to them. Listen, all that you've given doesn't make up for those simple words, I love you. It makes all the difference in the world. So to our family and friends, do it, but also in actions. Mending broken relationships. You know, sometime across the years, your relationship to people that are close to you get ruptured. I hold in my hand an article I clipped from the Birmingham News just a while back, the week after Princess Diana died, 2002. The article is about it from her mother's lips. And her mother said, for the last four months before she was killed in that tunnel in Paris, every letter I sent her 
was returned unopened that had a rupture in their relationship. Boom! It was too late. And I want to say to you, Princess Diana, we'll answer to God for that. That's wrong. If you've had a rupture in your relationship, those things can happen. But the thing to do, the manly thing, the womanly thing, the Christian thing to do, get it reconciled, get over it. Life is too short to go around holding on to these grudges. Show people that are close to you that you love them and appreciate them. Write them. Sometime you can think about someone, maybe it was a Sunday school teacher, Maybe it was a deacon friend. Maybe it was a friend somewhere that told you about Jesus, like Betty Wynn that I introduced you to here a month ago. Write them this afternoon. Tell them, I want to thank you for the impact you've had on my life. I don't know where I would be without your touch. It may be somebody in this audience right here this morning. They need to hear you say it. They need to see you write it that we express to them our love and our appreciation. Remember, the smallest deed done is better than the biggest intention. The smallest deed done is bigger than the biggest intention. Let's bow together. Heads bowed and eyes closed. You received as you came in today a small piece of paper that I want you to take in your hand and look at it and review it. It gives you some choices about receiving Christ, sharing Christ, making out a will, expressing love and gratitude. I don't know. I'm not here to play God for you. I'm not here to put you on a guilt trip. I'm just here to help you make decisions without walking down this aisle. And some of these decisions will be more important than those who walk the aisle. I want you to look carefully at that piece of paper. I'm not going to ask you to turn it in. I'm going to ask you to keep it in your Bible. I'd like for you to take a minute right now and check. What part of this do I need to do right now? Just between you and God, nobody else. Take just a moment and say, this is my decision on come before winter day. I want to nail down something specific that I'm going to do because of what God has spoken to me through his word. Fold it, put it in your Bible. Heavenly Father, we want to do business with you in a responsible way. We want our lives to reflect that we've really listened to Paul's appeal to come before winter. Help us, O oh Lord, not to put off to tomorrow what we need to do today. In your name we pray. Amen. Will you stand together with us? And as we stand, Paul is going to lead us. Staff will be here at the front. I've decided to follow Jesus. You make your response to God's invitation. Thanks for listening to this podcast. For more information about First Baptist Pelham and other free resources like this one, log on to fbcpelham.org.